It wasn't just go preach a salvation message, but rather the apostles were being told, please describe this revolutionary lifestyle that you have now embraced. Richard Wormbrand, who was a pastor in Romania, experienced, I think, 16 years of torture and imprisonment because of his love for Jesus. He said this, he said, there are two kinds of Christians. Those who sincerely believe in God and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. And then he said this, he said, you can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. One of the greatest things that we can say to people is, want to come to church with me? Would you like to come? And we, we think they're going to say, oh, I'm not into that. Some people are out there in your life just waiting for the invitation. It's great to be here with you and to enjoy this time in your presence and the presence of the Lord. We're in Acts 6. It's an interesting passage in this Catching the Wind series, the first seven verses. But let me start it this way. This week, on Broadway in New York City, a musical closed. It's been there for a number of months, and it's an anomaly. It's an anomaly compared to stuff that's usually on Broadway. And... Um, it's a musical that was and is called Amazing Grace. It was about a, a man named John. He was born in 1725 in Wapping, London. He, uh, at the age of seven, his mother died. His father was a stern taskmaster and a ship's captain. And so he got his son on board the ship working when he was 11 years old. By the time he was in his mid-teens... He was such a disobedient guy. He was, um, he was just a real problem. He was impressed that it, that means um, Shanghai by the Royal Navy was such a tough nut to crack there that once they chained him to a grate on the, on, on the floor of the, or on the deck and they lashed him 12 dozen times, eight dozen times, excuse me, cat of nine tails. He was so angry he wanted to kill the captain then commit suicide by jumping overboard. But instead he transferred to another ship called the Pegasus, which was a slaver that did the middle passage where you would take goods from Liverpool, go to the west coast of Africa, trade it for slaves, take them across to the Caribbean or, or, or the Americas there and would trade the slaves, sell the slaves and bring back cotton and rum. And you just keep doing that. And so for a number of years he did that. And when he, he actually got in trouble and was sold as a slave on the west coast of Africa in Sierra Leone for some time. When he was rescued, they took him back to England. And on the way there, they were in a storm on the Irish Sea. Now this young man, John, whom we know as John Newton. John Newton was a foul-mouthed, womanizing drunk. At his young age, his language was so filthy that the captain of the slave ship said he made up words. He took the words the sailors had and made them worse. And he would make up obscene songs. He wrote songs before he wrote the song Amazing Grace. But they were terrible songs. He wrote up these raunchy songs about the captain and the whole crew would sing them. 
And when he was in a storm on the Irish Sea at age 23, he called on God, and that started his journey. Almost overnight, apparently, his mouth stopped, if you will. He stopped his womanizing. He wasn't a drunk anymore. But he didn't stop slave trading for about seven years. And you say, how could that be? Well, probably he didn't see clearly as he was in his journey with Jesus. Because sometimes stuff drops off like this. And sometimes we don't see the categories until the Holy Spirit works on us. And so he became for me, if you will, the sort of the model of where does spiritual and practical intersect. I have two questions for you this morning as we start, and these are the two questions. Where do spiritual and practical intersect for us? And the second question is how can we come to see people like God sees them? Let me say the questions again. Where do spiritual and practical intersect for us, and how can we come to see people like God sees them? Those two questions are connected. And Acts 6 talks to that. The early church is exploding. You've heard it over the last few weeks. All the, It's high drama. There's miracles. There's healings. There's people's lives being changed. They're going like 3,000 a day at one point. I mean, just and, and with explosive growth come huge challenges. And their challenges were immigration questions, ethnic clashes, and some marginalized women who were hungry. And that's what these first seven verses of Acts 6 are about. So here they are. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked, key phrase, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Let me say it again. The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Key phrase, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn the responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. How often does that happen? This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's Jerusalem, international city, people from all over the place, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of backgrounds have gathered there, and not an insignificant number of widows you say, why would that be? Well, in the Middle East culture, you marry, you know, arranged marriages a lot of times, a younger woman to an older man. So he's going to die first. Just if you marry two people who are the same age, still, guys, it, mostly we're gone first. I hate to have you come to church and get that good news, but I'm telling you, you're out of here. And uh, that's how it is. In our country, we have 14 million widows and widowers, and 11 million of those are widows, 3 million widowers. Okay? So that's what they were facing And there was tension between the local widows, people who were homegrown, if you will, and these people who had moved back hundreds of years before. Assyrians had come down from the north in the 700s and the Babylonians in the 600s and taken Jewish people and scattered them, if you will. the, The word they use is diaspora. And these scattered people would come home a lot of times when they got older or when they were widowed. 
Or maybe they came to the day of Pentecost and so much action was going on. They're from, you know, they're from Greece or up in Turkey someplace. And they say, you know, I believe, I believe I'll stay here where the action is. Whatever the reason, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking widows, and the Aramaic-speaking widows had a problem. Because in the distribution of food, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. Key phrase. We'll come back to that. Here are people who have the same circumstances, the same faith, but they speak a different language. And the leaders are busy. Huge growth going on. And just on the backstroke, folks get neglected. And the result is murmuring or grumbling. Well, we've been there before. When you go back to the Exodus and the, and the folks are coming out of Egypt, they've been slaves for 400 years, the, the the Israelites, children of Israel, and they're coming out of Egypt, Moses is leading. They just get out there a few weeks and they start murmuring because the food's not the same, you know. And, and they're saying, man, if I could just have a bowl of onion soup one more time back in the place where I made bricks out of straw or something, that'd be good. See, clearly when you start murmuring, you go a little crazy. So murmuring is no small matter. And murmuring doesn't seek solutions. Leaders do. Historically in Judaism, great attention was paid to widows. You can read the Torah, you can read the prophets, and it talks about seeking justice for widows. And when you read the New Testament in James, it says pure religion is taking care for the widows and the orphans because they're in great stress and keeping yourself unpolluted from the world or by the world. But why, why widows? Why is that such a difficult thing? Well, the loss of a husband in that culture put her in great economic jeopardy and status in the culture. And so she was at the mercy of anybody who wanted to exploit her. They had a food program, whatever that was. They were distributing food. But the Hebrew, the Aramaic speakers, probably couldn't understand the Greek speakers. And they got overlooked in the mix. So the 12, who could have made the decision on their own, called the community together. And they, and they make this plan. Because leadership thinks of strategies. And it says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So they chose these seven. Stephen was sort of the lead guy, if you will. Apparently, the head waiter. He's, he's identified that, that way a bit more. And it said, choose men who are well-tested or well-attested. People look at him and say, they're good people. They got great hearts. They do good things. They're wise. We'll choose them. Stephen, and, and the root word for well-attested, is the word from which we get martyr. It's martyrion means witness. Stephen will become a key figure in this story two weeks from now when Pastor Derry comes back and speaks on chapter 7. You'll see that Stephen uh, dies for his faith. This week we're, we're praying for persecuted Christians around the world as we did last week. Well, the persecution started in chapter 7 of Acts. Choosing the seven pleased the whole group. The apostles prayed, laid hands on them. And in, in that moment in that time in that solution the church spoke to two huge potential problems one was disunity and the other was injustice and the result was the two problems disunity and injustice and the result was the word of god spread so the question i have for you is why why do you need to be full of the spirit to wait on tables like what's that about well Maybe it's that the Spirit inspires service. Maybe that's the answer. Okay? We always have this thing in, in religious circles about what's sacred and what's secular. You sort of have this false 
dichotomy. Is this godly or earthly? You hear phrases like, he's so heavenly minded, no earthly good. You know, that kind of language. This isn't about waiting on God or waiting on tables. They're both a God thing. Okay? They're simply different expressions of the same heart. It's like love the Lord your God, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your whole being. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Could it be that when we love our neighbors, we're loving God? Could be. This idea was that waiting on tables was just as much a part of following Jesus as what the apostles were doing. Apostles prayed and preached. And the deacons, or these people who were called deacons later, prayed and passed out food. Both necessary, same heart. Just by the way, parenthetically, they weren't called deacons here. Sometimes in your Bibles it says deacons were appointed. They didn't have a title. This is not a category. There's not a noun used in this text. There's a verb. The verb is diakone, and it means to serve. Now, I... I like titles, please, you know, don't misunderstand me. Titles describe what you're responsible for, but they don't define you. Let's say you're president of something, and then you're not president. You either step down or you get fired or something. You're still a person. You're still, you still have value. When I was a young pastor, you know, they called me pastor. I was like 26 years old. And we did a church plant near the University of Illinois. And I'd walk on the campus. And, and I was a senior pastor at 26. But you're, you know, who wants a senior pastor at 26? Well, college kids. Because you're, if you're 18, a 26-year-old is almost gone. You know, they're almost. <laughs> so I'd walk on campus and kids would call across the quad, PF, because they did call me Pastor Foth, not in front of their friends. It's PF, how are you doing? I said, good. I sort of like that. And, and then I became a college president. They called me president. <laughs> you know, president, that's like big. And... Uh, But I looked all through scripture and I couldn't find president anywhere. Closest I could come was emperor. And uh, (laughs) so I told the kids that once in chapel, a whole dorm of guys started calling me Emperor Foth when I walked in. Emperor, how are you doing? You know. But uh, then we went to D.C. in 1993 and it was just to walk with people. There was no office. There was no staff. There was no car. There was the it was was no title. and, And for 30 years I'd had titles and now I don't have a title. I just have a card with my name on it, <clears throat> and it's, a, it's in a town full of titles. And during the National Prayer Breakfast, which is a two-day event, they have four meal events. In the evening at the Hilton there in Washington, they have 21 meal events for people from different regions, for different categories of folks. These are the judges, and these are the congressmen, and all that. And then they have the big prayer breakfast. president comes. And then on Thursday evening, they have a closing dinner. And this particular year, I think it was 1996, they asked asked Billy Graham to come and talk. Not to preach, but a friend of mine who was a senator was going to interview him. And he was just going to give anecdotes from his rich life. So we were all excited. And so I was asked to host the senator who was a friend of mine, whatever that means. And he was going to host Billy. And so we're sitting at this round table, right? Ruth and I. And she's a Modesto, California girl. And I'm Oakland, California guy. And we're sitting at a table with the outgoing chaplain of the United States Senate, Richard Halverson. The incoming chaplain, Dr. Lloyd John Ogilvy, Billy Graham, the man. The senator, a guy sitting next to me, was high in the economic structure of Japan, which is sort of the core of their country. Myself, Ruth, and a prime minister and his wife from an island nation. We were way, well, we, 
we were, anyway, we, it, was a, it was a moment, you know. I mean, these people were sort of in awe. And I start talking to the Japanese fellow next to me, and pretty soon he hands me his card. Now, those of you who have been to Asia know that you put all of your titles on your card. Because it, it's a formal thing. You exchange cards, and it, it shows you how low to bow. It's so he's got all these titles, general counsel to this and that. And I'm insecure as I'll get out because I don't have a title. And I give him my title, give him my card, and it says Richard Foes, Falls Church, Virginia. And my friend Koji goes, oh. I said, what's the matter, Koji? Is there a problem? He said, oh, no problem, Dick. But in my country, only person who had no title on card is emperor. I said, yes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes there are just moments, you know what I'm saying? So it's not about titles, but on, on occasion it could be about a title. But they're not title deacon. It's a verb. These are people who serve. These are people who already deke. Okay? When I was a young pastor, people said, so we're going to have selection of deacons. We can only have seven. And so who should? I said, well, find people who are deking. Just, you know, who have served you, who are responsible, who pray for you, who care. I mean, this is a huge congregation, 4,500 people or so. Here at Timberline, we have seven deacons. Well, I'm thinking there's got to be more deacons than that in 4,500 people. What are they doing when they don't have the titles? Well, they're deaking. Are you with me here? They're serving people. They're caring for people. And on occasion, you get a title if you're in that office for two years or whatever it is. But the, the thing that's cool here is that the verb to serve, which is that word diakone, is used both for the apostles and for the waiters at tables. These guys are serving up the word, and these guys are serving up the matzo balls. Okay? It's the same thing. It's the same spirit. Full of the spirit. The spirit helps you serve. That's just how it is. So the answer to question number one that we started with was spiritual and practical intersect in the moment or the point of need. Spiritual and practical intersect at the point of need. So why do I need wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, to wait on tables? What's that about? Well, the spirit, I think, inspires wise and practical solutions. And what's the need here? The need here is not better eye-hand coordination so I can lay down the bowl of soup better. That's not what's looking for here. What you have here is a societal problem. They're dealing with hungry, marginalized, female immigrants, same religion, different culture and language. Big challenges. We always need wisdom. Solomon asks for wisdom back in the Old Testament. James says in the first, if, if you ask for wisdom, God won't call you an idiot. That's a fourth paraphrase. Say, God, I need wisdom. You say, no, you're too stupid. You don't get any. You know, no, no. He, he, it says when you ask for wisdom, he's willing to give that to you. But you need to know what to ask for. You know, and I would suggest we ask for wisdom. I had a young aide back in D.C. who wanted to be an Air Force chaplain. He now is one, a captain. He's been deployed a couple of times and wonderful young man. But I also had a friend at the time who was the chief of chaplains for the Air Force, a one-star Brigadier General in the Air Force. And so I arranged for us to have dinner together. I said, Jeremy, I'll call him Jeremy. It's not his name. But I said, Jeremy, we'll, let's have dinner with, with the chief of chaplains. He said, that would be fantastic. So we had dinner and we're talking about the military and all this kind of stuff. And we come to the end of the meal and Jeremy's kind of in awe, obviously. 
And the general turns to him and says, so Jeremy, is there anything I can do for you? And I'm thinking, yes. And Jeremy says, well, General, if you could just, if you could just pray for me. And I sort of exploded, not a real explosion. But I said, Jeremy, your grandmother can pray for you. He's asking if, you, if there's something he can do for you. You, know? you need to know what to ask for in this moment. Don't miss the moment. But God says, ask for wisdom and I'll pour it out on you. So... What you need in this situation is insight. You need practical solutions to these things. I love the story. Not the story, but the actual thing that happened. At the end of World War II, there were millions of orphans in Europe. And uh, this is a picture of some Polish orphans. There were almost a million orphans just in Poland after the war. And they had this problem. They found that when they put them to bed, they were half-starved. They put them to bed, they'd give them a cup of milk and a piece of bread, they'd eat it, then they'd put them to bed, but they would wake up in the night and they'd be crying and they'd be scared and they'd have night terrors. And a therapist who was working with them said, I think I know what the problem is. I think the problem is they know they've been fed what they're not sure of is if they'll have food tomorrow because they were so frightened, so traumatized. And so they started giving each child, after they had their dinner, they'd give them an extra piece of bread to hold when they went to sleep. So when they woke up in the night, they realized they still had something for tomorrow, and they started sleeping through the night. A wise solution. So the the key question here is how can we see people as God sees them? Where does spiritual and practical intersect at the point of need? How can we see people as God sees them? The early believers in the early church didn't have a feeding problem. Not really. What they had was a seeing problem. It says that, that the Greek widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Good people can get crosswise when they're overlooked. You know that. Some of you have been overlooked. I've been overlooked, and I get a little ticked. I'm, I'm saying, whoa, what's the, what's the deal here? <clears throat> the Greek speakers were being overlooked. The question is, why were they being overlooked? Well, they were the wrong category. We live by categories, don't we? We live in categories. We see the world through categories. I'm, I'm, I'm in the category of bald guys. I'm, I'm a bald white guy. Well, not really white, sort of pink. And I'm not really just a white guy. I'm a Scotch-Irish English, Dutch, German, white guy. And I'm from California or, or the left coast, depending on where you are. And, and, so, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm in the father category and the husband category and the grandpa category and the talker category. And we got all these categories. Think about what I just said a moment ago. We are dealing with hungry, marginalized, widows, female, immigrants, Of the same faith, they're all Jewish, but different cultures. There's nothing wrong with categories. That's how we sort of live in our world. You you have to have categories at some level. But but it's when they turn south, when, when when they're used to shut people out, that it becomes problematic. Oh, you know how they are. Do I? Well, you know that group. You know what they stand for or what they believe. Really? Do you know that? Well, but it's easier to work with categories. Yeah, it's easier to work with categories unless it means that you shut people out. The Spirit wants to overwhelm our categories. 
The Spirit wants to overwhelm our categories. Stephen, the head waiter, was killed because he was the wrong category. He was one of those Jesus followers. And the guy who held his the coats of the guys who were throwing rocks was a young guy named Saul, who some years later had this powerful experience on the road to Damascus, and he switched categories. He became a Jesus follower. And years after that, he's writing to a, a church in Turkey called Galatia. And this is what he writes. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Spirit wants to overwhelm, to shatter, to dissemble our categories. That's why tested wise men full of the Spirit are needed. You say, but categories make life simpler. It does, unless the categories and how I, how I work with them are opposite of how Jesus works. In in this story, there's only a slight difference. They're all widows. They're all, you know, they're all Jewish. They're, but they just speak different languages. So they're unseen. They're overlooked. Like some of you guys, some of you folks, uh, playground baseball back in the day when you chose up sides during recess and you'd get out there and the, and the real athletic guy, you know, he was like twice as big as the rest. Of, he was always the captain and he'd choose, you know, Harry, John, Fred. And you keep and you get, you get jumped if you don't have eye-hand coordination, if you're not too fast, if you can't catch a ball or hit a ball. You just get overlooked. You get bypassed or passed by. It's like colorblindness. Categories make overlooking a habit. When I work in categories, it makes it so easy to overlook you, to discount you, to neglect you. It's like colorblindness. You only see certain colors when you're colorblind. I was driving up through Montana with a friend. He was from Montana, a big hunter. And we were driving along. He said, look at that hill over there. It was a barren hill. He said, look at those elk. I'm a kid from Oakland, California. I'm looking. I don't see any. He said, right over there, there's a whole herd of elk. I said, man, I don't see. All I see is rocks. And about that time, a couple of the rocks moved. So it was those, <laughs> those elk rocks. You know, they They moved. If you're not trained to see it, if you're not brought up, if, you, if you're not instructed or helped to see it, you won't see it. The Spirit recognizes categories but deals in individuals. I asked the Lord numbers of times, Lord, save me from hardening of the categories. Don't let me get hardening of the categories. Because if I do, I will categorize you, then I will demonize you, then I'll see you as non-human, and then I'll become a slaver like John Newton. Because the only way you can keep on slaving is if you don't see those as real people. If you don't see those in a category that touches your heart in some way. Let's see them like Jesus sees them. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So I have a suggestion for you in the category thing. Here's the, here's the deal. The next time somebody says to you, <clears throat> John, how do you see those people? What do you think about those people? Or somebody says, Maria. 
What do you think about that group? Here's what I suggest you respond with. You ready for this? All you say is, which one? Jesus doesn't see you in your geopolitical boundaries or your ethnicities or any of that. Jesus sees you as an individual. And if you were the only one on the planet, he would have come for you. And that's how it is. So you say, I get it. I get the spirit changes structures. He brings wise people in. But what do we do this week? I close with this. The last couple of weeks, I've read a book by a friend of mine, The Galley Proofs. He asked if I would read it and endorse it. It's coming out next March. It's written by a fellow named Barry Corey. Barry Corey I met when he was 20 and a college senior back in New England. He's now the president of a Christian university in Southern California called Biola University. He wrote this book because his father triggered it in him. Hugh Corey, who went to be with Jesus in 1998, was Barry's dad. And Hugh Corey had this life verse, Matthew 10:40, which goes like this. He who receives you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. I take that to mean if I'm just old Joe Pagan out here floating around and you befriend me, when I get you as a friend, I get you, I get the Spirit, I get Jesus and the Father all at one shot. That's how I see it, right? Hugh's dad saw it as the Spirit in you takes down the barriers, the things that I, the filters I see people through. And this is how Barry describes his father sharing that with him. Barry had gone on a Fulbright fellowship to Bangladesh to work in villages in their education system. And his father, this is years ago, came to visit him. I was in Bangladesh for several months and my father visited for a few days. I was in my late 20s, ponytailed and single. Each morning before breakfast, he and I, Hugh Corey, and I stepped onto the streets of Dhaka, one of the world's poorest and most densely populated cities. On our walk, we passed half-constructed homes framed by bamboo scaffolding. Dumpsters were permanent, not portable, made of brick and rummaged through simultaneously by dogs and children and widows. Open drains on each side of the street reeked of human waste, and rickshaw peddlers dodged us as we walked our morning route. My dad was particularly interested in what I was seeing and observing. This was nothing new. But one morning, our walk seemed different, quieter, more contemplative. As we turned the first corner, he shared with me that five decades after he began his pilgrimage of faith, there was so much about God's wisdom and ways that he still did not know. He held no seminary degree. He never completed college. But as we walked, Hugh Corey, the follower of God, began to share with me what his life in Christ had taught him. And he camped on this sentence in his first language, King James. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Not sure my father grasped the full context, but he modeled... What Jesus talked about in Scripture, a receivable life. By receivable, Hugh Corey meant, you know, we can structure ourselves in ways that people will receive us. You know, we want to look good, we want to do it. He said, but a receivable life is one where we take down the barriers. We let the Spirit work in us to take down our prejudgments and our suppositions, our assumptions, so that if they wanted to receive us, 
that would be easy. This I do know. I've gone back to that walk many times. I know that God ordained that moment when I would receive a cherished gift. On the fetid streets of Bangladesh, as from the local mosque, the Muzin was calling Muslims to prayer, the bedrock of Hugh Corey's faith was passed on to me, my father's son. Two days after he spoke, I witnessed his demonstration of the profound power of the receivable life. Shamsul was a poor Bangladeshi man of 21 who read in a bed in the servants' quarters behind the house where I lived. He spoke little English, but I noticed my father began to build, begin to build a relationship with Shamsul in the few days since he arrived, something I honestly had not done. For my father, this was nothing new. All my life, I saw him show love to school teachers, wayfarers, disgraced pastors, dentists, tailors, attorney, attorneys, and on and on. But it was not until after our walk earlier in the week that I pondered that phrase, he who receives you receives me whoever receives me receives him who sent me then it happened the receivable moment occurred between Hugh Corey and Shamsul as my father showed him radical kindness I was transfixed as this 68 year old Canadian preacher reached out his hands in a moment of outpouring compassion and as I had witnessed many times before held another person's face in his grip I was willing to bet on what was coming next and I would have won Shamsul, my friend, the Canadian preacher said, I love you. Then pulling my father's face to him, to his, Shamsul leaned forward and kissed my father right on the head. On one day in Bangladesh, my father told me what kindness looked like. A few days later, he showed me. Kindness has good eyes. Spirit eyes. When kindness shows up, barriers drop, and no one gets overlooked. When I learn to see people like Jesus does, I become receivable. Lord, fill me with your spirit and with your wisdom. Save me from being a category guy. Save me from being an overlooker. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me this morning as we close? Just in this quiet moment with no one looking around, I just want to ask two questions very quickly. The first is this. You say, Dick, I, uh, I got to tell you, I'm way too much of a category person. <laughs> and I know it. I, this, this morning at this moment, I know it. And what I know it does is it shuts other people out and it shuts me in. If you're sensing that, that's not because Foth gave a, a talk. That's because the Spirit of God is tweaking that in your own heart. And you say, but I don't want to be this way. Whatever that is. It's a, it's a whole range, isn't it? But in this moment, you just say, I, I want you to include me in your closing prayer. You just slip a hand up and say, I don't want to be that category person. Yes, just raise your hands wherever you are and put them right back down. Yes, I see you. Yes, yes, numbers of us. Thank you. There may be some here, as there were in the other services, who said, you know, I think much of my life I felt like I was overlooked. But this morning as you were talking, I recognized perhaps for the first time that Jesus doesn't overlook me. 
He looks right at me. And he chooses me. And I want to respond to that this morning and say to Jesus, I want to, I want to follow you. I want to find out more. I want to start that journey. And you just say, I want to be included in the prayer too. And you'll slip your hand up just so I can see. Just put it up and put it right back down. Yes, yes, yep, yep, yes, yes, yes. Father, here we are. You know us. Thank you for these friends who said, I don't want to be a category person any longer. At least I don't, I don't want it to impact my life in a way that, I, that keeps me from impacting others. We pray for a baptism of clear seeing that your spirit brings. Some of us have struggled with categories our whole lives because we were put in them. We were overlooked. And that's what we give back. But thank you that your spirit comes to break that, to erode that. And for these dear friends who have said, I, f- I felt overlooked my whole life, but I really want I really want to say to Jesus, I hear what you're saying to me this morning, that you don't overlook me. And I want to start that journey with you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said.